This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at pgasuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris. And now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Frank Navalo. You know Frank from the great work that he does broadcasting on the Golf Channel, but let me you know, give you some more background on Frank. He is from Auckland, New Zealand. At the age of 18, he won the New Zealand Amateur Championship, becoming the second, young, second youngest player ever to win that title. He turned pro in 1979. His first, first professional win came at the 1982 New South Wales PGA Championship. He won the New Zealand PGA Championship twice in 1985 and 1987, joined the European Tour in 1985 as a full-time player and got his first win on that tour at the 1988 PLM Open. Frank finished in the top 50 on the European Order of Merit every year from 1988 to 1996, and all he won 14 times around the world, including two Sarazen World Opens, the 1997 Greater Greensboro Chrysler Classic here on the PGA Tour. He's played on numerous World and Dunhill Cups for New Zealand and was a three-time member of the International President's Cup team. In the mid-1990s, Frank recorded top 10 finishes in all four major championships, including a fourth-place finish at the 96 Masters, a ninth-place finish at the 94 U.S. Open, 10th at the 97 Open Championship, and 8th at the 96 PGA. Frank joined the Golf Channel back in 2004 as now a lead analyst on their PGA Tour coverage and in their studio shows for Golf Central and Live From shows, and I'm honored that he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Frank, Chris Mascaro here. Thanks for coming on the show. Sorry it's taken so long, Chris. Yeah, looking forward to it. I appreciate it, Frank. So, Frank, I want to start by going back to, you know, when you first started playing the game. I read a couple of friends persuaded you to play golf when you really fancied playing rugby instead. But is that, is that accurate? Is that how it got started for you? Um, it was just about every other sport bar golf, to be honest, yeah. Um, uh, a friend of mine, his, his name was Chris Treen. His parents sort of put him into golf um, very, very early on in life. So he'd started playing golf since about the age of five or six. But, um, you know, there was three of us. And, and the third guy in question is a guy called Mark Lewis. His uh, elder brother lost in the final of Wimbledon to John McEnroe. Um, uh, in the early 70s, if my memory serves me right, Mark, um, in the end, uh, turned pro as a tennis player. I actually finished up co- coaching Michael Steak. But, yeah, the three of us went out. I was 13 years of age, um, fell in love with the game. I really did. We only got to play 15 holes. It got too dark. It was at a public golf course, and I think that's where everybody should start. Um, got hooked on it and um, have been tormented by it ever since. And to that point, Frank, at 13 years old, at what point – you know, since you start winning golf tournaments, big golf tournaments, by the time you're 18, at what point did you start thinking, you know what, I could be pretty good at this? Um, it's it's a great question. Um, I, I think when kids take up the game, obviously if you take it up about the age of three or four, then, you know, like a Roy Macker or a Tiger Woods, you learn to chip and part and do all those things because obviously you don't have the power. Either that or if you take it a little um, little later in life, you know, 13, 14 years of age, normally you're strong enough and you've played other sports. So I think you generally tend to improve very, very quickly. And, um, you know, for me, you detail the, the New Zealand Amateur at 18. I won that on my 18th birthday. So as, as soon as that happened, 
and I, and I played with um, our leading amateur, our greatest ever amateur, a gentleman by the name of Stuart Jones. He said a lot of nice things, and, and it sort of coerced me to, to think about golf as a career. I've always loved sports, um, whether it be team sports or individual. So it just sent me down an area where, or a lane, should I say, where, where I could um, find my own way, basically. Do you, you know, certain moments in, in golf, you know, sort of stick with you. And and for me, I mean, I always remember the first par I made. I remember the first birdie I ever made. Do you remember the first birdie you ever made? I don't remember the first birdie, to be honest, but I remember the first missed birdie part, the second hole at Chamberlain Park. Um, and that's a public golf course, believe it or not, with Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer played an exhibition match in the 60s. It was a short, you know, par three. I remember hitting um, a, a wood, believe it or not, because I didn't know how far it went. I hit it to about four feet. And... Um, well, maybe even not even four feet and missed it, lipped it out. So at one stage I thought, this game isn't that hard. And then when I saw the ball horseshoe out, um, I'm like, oh, maybe it's not that easy. But uh, I'll never never forget the shot. I'll actually never forget the missed part either. But um, never, I, I cannot remember what the first birdie ever made. <clears throat> you remember your first start out, out on tour, where that was? Um, yeah, I, I do. Matter of fact, I was I was um, just in New Zealand. Uh, it was called the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I got inducted into the New Zealand Golf Hall of Fame. I hadn't been back for a while. And, and I was there actually to work the Asia Pacific Amateur uh, Championship. Uh, you know, the winner of that gets a start into the Masters. So that's an initiative that I've been involved in for the last six or seven years. And it was in Wellington, which is our capital city in New Zealand, not where I, brought, I was brought up. I was brought up in Auckland, as you detailed. But the first ever, and I remember in the speech that um, that I had to make that night, I remember saying, you know, thank you for allowing me to complete the circle because that was, Wellington was a place where I played with my first ever professional golf tournament. That was in 1979. Um, and I'd got to play as an amateur with Billy Casper the year before also in Wellington. So, um, you know, for me it was a trip down memory lane. But, um, yeah, uh, it was in, uh, December 1979. And Frank, you, you mentioned the Masters, and, and I love the Masters. I love Augusta National. And when I was doing the research on you, it looked like your first trip to Augusta National was back in 1995. Is that right? And do you remember your first time there? Yeah, I do. I'd, uh, I was working with my coach, Dennis Pugh. In those days, they didn't use the top 50 of the world rankings, so you had to get in by virtue of uh, playing well in another tournament. And a good friend of mine now, Ken Schofield, was the, the head of the European Tour, and he fought extremely hard with the USGA and the PGA Tour to sort of grant at least money list positions for some of the prominent events in, in America. For example, um, Faldo didn't play a lot of Masters early on because, or should I say a lot of US Opens early on, because they would only ever take the leader of the European Tour money list. So that year, um, or should I say the previous year, which was 1994, uh, they allowed the top 15 of the European Order of Merit to get into the U.S. Open. And uh, that was the first U.S. Open I ever played. It was at Oakmont, and I finished up in the last group with Ernie Els on Sunday. Played good enough to um, to finish in the, you know, the top 10 or whatever it was, and that garnered me an exemption into, or should I say an invitation, into Augusta for 1995. Um, I remember going there. I was so excited. I'd, I'd heard all the stories that you had to hook it. So I used to hit it with a little cut, so I spent like a couple of months leading up to it with my coach, Dennis Pugh, on trying to hook it, got there, and and uh, before I knew it, I was like hooking. And, and matter of fact, I think it was the first score I ever shot in the 80s was the first round. And I was going to pull out. I was so disappointed. And um, my wife and uh, my coach 
we were at um, a Japanese restaurant that night, and I'm like, you know, complaining and moaning like everybody does or that plays the PGA Tour. And um, I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to play the next day. And my coach looked at me and says, you're going to have to. And I'm like, no, I don't. Why? He says, you're drawn with Arnold Palmer. So um, I went out the next day. I think I shot 73, but I got to play with the King. And uh, and I'm glad I didn't withdraw and didn't set a precedent. But um, And things looked up after that. The very next year, I finished fourth when I came back. Right. And uh, to that to that point, you, you finished fourth the next year. What was it like being in the hunt at a Masters? Uh, it, it's great. Any major championship. I, I'd actually played well in major championships and, you know, I'd, uh, played four rounds in the majority of the ones that I played in. Uh, but that one was, was abnormal because uh, it obviously involved two European heavyweights uh, or people that played the European tour that I knew very well and Greg Norman and Nick Faldo. And I remember seeing Greg on the range uh, just before uh, I was about to go off. And, you know, you just wish people luck. I thought he'd paid his dues and six shots. He wasn't going to blow it. Um, even though Faldo had birdied the, the 18th hole the night before to get into that last group. But... Um, I've said it on TV a lot. Everybody talks about the roars at Augusta, but when it goes quiet there, it is suffocating. And that's exactly what happened. When when Norman started to make a few bogeys, uh, the roars went. And um, excuse the terminology, but it was almost like a funeral procession, uh, procession. You knew something bad was happening. And, of course, he had the one guy who was playing his best golf of his life through the 90s. That was Nick Felder, who wasn't going to budge. And it already obviously... Uh, had a couple of masters under his belt, so he knew exactly what um, the back nine at Augusta was going to be like when uh, when the most intense pressure was on and, and hit one of the, the great long irons into um, to 13. That still doesn't get enough credit, that two on off the hanging slope. But, yeah, it was great. I got to play with David Duvall, actually, in that final round, too. First time I ever played with David. And Frank, a moment ago, you, you mentioned the 94 U.S. Open at Oakmont. First, that was obviously that was Mr. Palmer's final U.S. Open. So what, what what was it like for the rest of you guys, you know, through those first two rounds as, as Arnold is sort of playing out, you know, his U.S. Open career? What was it like for you guys and the galleries that were that were following him? I, I imagine it had to be a little, you, 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 your attention goes there, but it had to be a little surreal having, you know, the king kind of play out his last, his, uh, his last U.S. Open there. Yeah, selfishly. Being my first U.S. Open, when I got there, I wasn't exactly hooked into the whole Arnold Palmer's last U.S. Open. And I think he played with Rocco Media and John Mahaffey um, in that round. But obviously by, by Friday, you knew it was extremely important. He was only a couple of groups away. But I remember finishing and seeing, um, you know, they had a, a, a screen um, in the locker room and that, and you could see what was going on in the media center. And, you know, I was brought up, you know, pretty tough school in New Zealand and that, and, and I was sort of in the era where men weren't meant to cry. Um, doesn't matter how bad you felt. You know, you went behind somewhere else and cried where nobody else could see you. And, and I'll never forget Arnold Palmer uh, thanking the media and crying. And there's this, you know, sort of macho guy um, that had played all the way around the world. Everybody knew him by the king, and, and um, everybody had a story with him. And little unknown to me, I was going to play with him the next year in the Masters. And uh, so I, I, I remember him just thanking the media and crying. And I'm like, it's okay to cry. Um, I, I just thought it was a huge revelation. And oddly enough, when I spoke to other people, they got the same feeling out of that. You know, Arnold always made you feel welcome. Um, obviously, with the Golf Channel, got to know him a lot. And 
saw him over dinner, and you know, if you'd pop over to Bay Hill, uh, just a phenomenal man. So he he defaulted always to the right thing, but um, he was a media mogul. He just he just knew what to say, uh, shake a kid's hand or whatever. He's a he's a one off. And Frank, the the leaderboard for that U.S. Open was amazing because after Mr. Palmer exited the tournament. Jack Nicholas was still near the top of that leaderboard. Tom Watson was there. Hale Wilruin was there as well. You and Ernie Els. What was it like competing with those names being on the leaderboard? Uh, it, it was hard. Um, you know, once again, not trying to sort of play on the fact that I you know, come from a small country, but you, you idolize those people. You're waking up in the morning and watching major championships around the world, they, they were the poster ch- children for the game. Um, if you didn't know who Nicholas was, you didn't play golf. If you didn't know Arnold, you know Arnold Palmer or Tom Watson or Greg Norman or, or whatever, and and also Nicholas Norman, you know their surname start with N, so mine does as well. So my locker at a major was always close to this. So the, the weird, it, that's where it was surreal. You'd go in and and uh, you couldn't avoid it. And uh, you know they, they, that's the Mount Rushmore of golf. So it was phenomenal to to be in, involved in not necessarily that era because obviously you know, Jack Nicholas started in you know, late 50s, 60s, you know, his amateur career in the 50s. But um, I was saying it last week with regard to Tiger Woods is that normally each generation takes over the previous one. You got to play with the greats of the game and get beaten and then maybe when you, your game stood up to it, you finally you know, got a few victories or whatever over them and then you could feel even more comfortable. Um, obviously with Tiger Woods the last few years being injured, um, this new generation have never really had to compete with them, which is anomaly uh, with uh, with the game of golf. But, yeah, so to answer your question, it was phenomenal to look at that leaderboard and, and basically see on just about every, every name that I'd respected or swing I'd seen and try to copy to see them on the leaderboard. And, Frank, you got to play in three President's Cup matches, and you helped the international team win it back in 1998. Talk about what it's like being a part of those matches. Yeah, growing up as a kid, playing other sports, I've always craved for team sports. So to play in Dunhill Cups, which used to be a three-man team, we were runner-up to America one year in the final at St. Andrews. Uh, World Cup was a two-man team, but, you know, a 12-man team. We could never play Ryder Cup. And, and uh, when I played in Europe for you know, nearly a 10 dozen years, um, everything revolved around the Ryder Cup. I remember Ken Schofield once saying, you know, the Ryder Cup is our Tiger Woods, our Jack Nicklaus. And uh, we we could never play. Uh, the Nick Prices, the Ernie Alses, the VJ Sings, Greg Normans, um, all the players that came from other parts apart from Europe or America, they could never play in a team event of that magnitude. And that's why the President's Cup started. Um, in those days, you know, a lot of the, the, the top of the world rankings um, there was non-American, non-European players there. So it just seemed very, very logical. I know right now we're a little starved there for depth, but um, it seemed logical to have this event. And, and so we, we stacked up on paper pretty good, at least the top five or six players did. And so to have a chance to play the might of America, um, it's still one of the greatest things I've ever done. Uh, the first one at Lake Manassas, we were like a fish out of water, but we got to go to the White House. And the second one, we were competitive. And the last one I played at Royal Melbourne, um, we won in a landslide against a very, very strong American team. I, I think it was a little late in the year for the Americans. They'd sort of uh, gone for a little bit of a holiday, and um, they probably didn't have their best stuff. But um, after being 
beaten narrowly the year, the two years prior to that. We were we had the bit between the teeth, but um, I, I'm a great believer in the event. I know people say otherwise, but when they compare it with the Ryder Cup, um, it's actually, believe it or not, off to a better start than the Ryder Cup was. People just forget that. They don't dig into their history. To the, the, the point you made a moment ago, Frank, there's, there was so much talk this year after the U.S. team got off to such a big early lead that maybe they need to change something, change how the event is played. Do they? Does anything need to change? Well, you know, I can. it's one of those discussions. You can see both sides of it. Um, you've got an exceptionally good young, or great young team now um, that all sort of grew up to that class of 2011 that we talk about. So much of that team, nearly half of it is from that. So it's a, it's a whole generation that are just used to playing together, and, and they haven't been beaten. Um, you know, they've had success now in Ryder Cup and President's Cup, so it's a tremendous nucleus. Meanwhile, on the other side, the whole generation of the last 10 years of um, the Adam Scotts, the Jason Days, they have not had a win. So you've got a generation of people that, that um, have not succeeded in that. So it's been tough for them to always try and decode it. Um, the changes to try and make the points a little more like the Ryder Cup. I, I, I personally believe if Samuel Ryder was a, was alive and saw the way golf was now, he would agree with like an America's Cup type format, you know, the yachting race, and maybe the President's Cup would be a defender's, you know, a chance for the challenger to play for the Ryder Cup. So in this situation, America would get a buy, and they would be because you know, they're the holders of the Ryder Cup in Europe and and um, the rest of the world would play for the right to play the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup. Um, I know why that won't happen. Obviously, the Europe, Europe don't want to give away a piece of the Ryder Cup. I think the Americans would probably go for it to give them a break. But, yeah, it's just a, a tough time. If you, um, if you look at the first sort of 25, 30 years of the Ryder Cup, it was extremely one-sided. Actually, the first 50 years were. So it, it'll take time. Um, when you're trying to put in a lot of nationalities in one team and get them to gel... There's uh, logical problems, uh, language barriers and that, that still haven't been overcome. That's, that's the real problem rather than the format. Frank, just a couple more before we let you go. And, and you're such a talented analyst now on, on the Golf Channel. You do such a wonderful job on all the shows that you do. Talk Thank about the, the transition. How did you go from playing the game you know, out on tour to broadcasting it and analyzing it on the Golf Channel? Uh, it was a fluke, to be honest. Um, you know, when I look back, it's a bit like you know my amateur career in golf. Um, I got diagnosed with rheumatoid inflammatory polyarthritis in my rookie year in America in 1997. So I knew, in some respects, the writing was on the on the wall. Uh, medication in those days wasn't as good as what it is now. And um, you know, I tried to play; it got worse. Uh, you know, couldn't really play and play. And if you ask my wife, she would say that I you know became miserable. So in the end, when I, when I pulled the plug at the end of 2002, I really didn't know what was around the corner. People would ask me in pro-ams, and I, my answer was always, well, if I knew what I was going to do, then I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. I always thought you should focus on the de- endeavor in front of you. And I remember, um, the, does the name Jeff Julian ring a bell? Yes. Yeah, ALS. I, um, my wife got to know his significant other, and, and I remember playing in his day. I, I played with his, his uh, sister. And that's when Jeff was doing very, very poorly, you know, obviously with the ALS. And um, those sort of days, even though I've done a few of them, I, I don't, I struggle with them. So I was sitting outside just trying to come to grips. It was a very emotional day. And believe it or not, Rich Lerner saw me. And uh, he just sat down and chatted. And, and I was sort of coming to the end of my career, but somebody was going to lose their life. 
and it was unavoidable. So, you know, I'm like, last thing I was thinking about was, was doing something else. And he said, maybe you should think about TV. And I'm like, I sort of laughed it off. And, and I remember talking to my agent and he goes, well, you know, the golf channel is looking for people. And in those days they had the champions tour. So it was uh, less visual, so to speak, when you learn. And, um, Lo and behold, they, they needed some people, and, and I thought, well, what the hell, I'll give it a go. I've got nothing to lose. And that's exactly what happened. So in 2004, my first start was um, was in Hawaii. Um, I'll never forget it. And sat next to Jim Kelly and, and Mark Rolfing. Tina Mickelson was also on the broadcast. That was her debut, and, and um, it was it was a rough start. But, you know, I was lucky. I, I had a, a great producer in Keith Hirschland. Um, didn't think he liked me early on, to be honest, but he was, um, he made everybody better that, that he worked under. And then I've worked with just about every great producer in the game now. Um, so I've been very, very fortunate. Yes. And, and Keith's a fantastic guy. We've had, uh, had the privilege of having Keith on the show a few times this year and get, getting to know him. So I'll be sure to pass along, uh, you know, the, the wonderful comment you just made. I appreciate that very much. Frank, before we no, let you go. Let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the things that you're doing? You know, follow you online, follow you on social media to see all the great things you're going to be up to. Um, they probably can't, really. I've, I have a love-hate relationship with uh, social media. Um, I don't really like the direction it's gone. I, I realize it's essential, but... Um, you know, if, if, if see me at golf tournaments, um, you know, I love people, whether I run into them at a restaurant or, or, or whatever. Um, if I can talk to them face-to-face, I'll talk their air off and, and hopefully answer, answer anything they want. Um, I always think, you know, social media is more about clickbait with a lot of people that use it these days that, that are in my industry. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're getting further away from people asking, you know, proper questions and people giving them proper answers. Um, it's all about sort of... Uh, trying to push it through so um for example i'm in naples this week and uh, just stop me i'll be i always drive around a golf course or i'll be on the range always trying to do my homework on live broadcast so um i'd love a dollar for every time somebody stopped me and we've had a good chat um that's how you learn as well from my point of view uh, learn what people want how, what the, i always ask them what they think what they want and uh, what do they think we do wrong what do we think we do right and and i learn because it's their show that's what we do it for uh, we're, we're just a conduit for the game we're not when we're not bigger than the game other people might disagree with that but um it's a great game whether i'm playing it now because i'm not or somebody else's um so i get a, i get a the best seat in the house and all i try and do is pass on some of the things that that i see the best players in the world doing there you go that's fantastic Frank, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to join me tonight. It's uh, it's fascinating for me to listen to your stories and your insights and the things that you know that you've done over the course of your career. And I appreciate the uh, the amount of time you gave me tonight. And I hope you come back and do it again sometime. We'll do, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. You have a great Christmas. Sir. Same to you and your family, Frank. Take care. Cheers. That Bye. is the great Frank Navalo. And uh, as you know, uh, what the great job that Frank does on the Golf Channel and uh, try to give you a little bit of flavor of what a great golfer that Frank was, you know, growing up and uh, through his uh, amateur career and then through the time that he played out on tour. So he was involved, like I say, you go back and you look at the mid-1990s, Frank was in the mix continually. Fourth at the 96 Masters, ninth at the 94 U.S. Open, tenth at the 97 Open Championship, and eighth at the 96 PGA. So Frank was in the mix a lot and uh, did some great things there. And like I said, continues to do great things as a as a wonderful broadcast analyst on the Golf Channel. Like I say, hopefully we get the opportunity to have him back on the show again real soon. <laughs> 